Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the November 27, 2018 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, a runoff election is taking place for the Mississippi U.S. Senate seat. Oh, and it's Giving Tuesday all over the country today. I'll add this, my platform, to the hundreds drawing attention to the fourth national climate assessment that the White House snuck out last Friday. I'm also going to call out journalistic malpractice for all those media outlets who led with the future outcomes when the current devastation demands our attention first. Today, along those very lines, we are fortunate to hear from Mr. Bob Inglis, Executive Director of Republin.org and former Congressman representing Greenville-Spartanburg, South Carolina. We'll see how many mountains he's moved and is moving on climate change acceptance in business and in the grand old party. In the second segment, Kate Melgis, Ocean Plastics campaigner for Greenpeace, will direct our attention to the production end of the omnipresent plastics. Yeah, consumers can make better decisions, but the producers make it all so hard for us. We'll be right back after a very short station break. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Bob Inglis, who served in the U.S. Congress from 1993 to 1998, representing Greenville-Spartanburg, South Carolina, and unsuccessfully uh, challenged U.S. Senator Fritz Hollings in 1998, and then returned to the practice of commercial real estate law in Greenville, South Carolina. In 2004, he was reelected to Congress, but in 2010, was primaried by his own party because of his disposition on climate change. In 2011, he went full-time into promoting free enterprise action on climate change and launched the Energy and Enterprise Initiative at George Mason University. In the fall of 2014, this organization was rebranded to become Republican. Org, a growing grassroots community of over 5,000 Americans educating the country about free enterprise solutions to climate change. It's a 501c3 operation hosted at, as I was talking about, still at the George Mason University Foundation and educates, recruits, and organizes conservative voices for action on climate change. And we'll hear more about it in today's interview. For his work on climate change, Bob Inglis was given the 2015 John F. Kennedy Profile and Courage Award. He appears in the film Merchants of Doubt in the Showtime series Years of Living Dangerously, that's two episodes, three and four, at TEDx Jacksonville and TEDx Beacon Street. I first heard about Bob Inglis on his This American Life, the segment entitled Hot in My Backyard. Bob Inglis was a resident fellow at Harvard University's Institute of Politics, a visiting energy fellow at Duke University's Nicholas School of the Environment, and resident fellow at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics. He's completed his undergraduate work at Duke University and his law degree at the University of Virginia School of Law. He practiced, as I was mentioning earlier, commercial real estate law uh, between his congressional years. He comes to us today 
from from South Carolina, from Spartanburg? Traveler's Rest, actually. Oh, okay. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Bob Inglis. Well, great to be with you, Claudia. Thank you. And isn't that interesting to think the name of our town is wonderful, Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. Absolutely. Well, let's start with how would your 2010 self react to your 2018 self about where we are presently with respect to climate solutions and the body politic? Yeah, what a great question. That's a great way to put it. I haven't had anybody put it to me that way, and I will also tell you, you were right in that journalistic call-out. so important that we focus on the immediate, because otherwise people glaze over if they think it's going to be decades away. But in answer to your question there, Claudia, about what would my 2018 self say to my 2010 self, well, um, I'd say that things are quite different now than they were in 2010. You know, I got tossed out of Congress by the Tea Party in part in a Republican primary, in part because uh, of various heresies. But my most enduring heresy was just saying that climate change is real and let's do something about it. Um, But it's quite different now. This is 2018. The Great Recession is long gone. We've had more experiences with climate change. We're now much more aware that it is here and now. And we've got a growing infrastructure on the eco-right, we call it, which is a balance to the environmental left, which uh, makes a case with the language of conservatism that it makes sense to to avoid the, 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 the disastrous consequences of climate change and to do reasonable risk avoidance. So um, we're uh, so th- those are the three big differences between 2010, where I got tossed out, and 2018, where it should be much safer for Republican members of Congress and the Senate to say, the Great Recession's gone. We're experiencing climate change. We see this infrastructure being built built on the right. Let's engage on climate change. So I'm I'm gonna. It's a bit of a broadside, Bob Inglis, but I I really I think my listeners are keen to want to know this take from you is how did a libertarian Republican such as yourself feel on November 9th, 2016? Um, I was uh, despondent, actually. Um, uh, I had a, a conference a call with all my my wife and all our children. We have five children, and so we talked on the phone until three o'clock in the morning. I oh think that, that uh, evening, uh, it's all a, a group therapy session about. And uh, the words I mostly remember our daughter McCullough saying, "Dad, this isn't right, is it?" And um, I said to her, "No, McCullough, it's not right." Uh, this is not right. That um, basically, this kind of uh, this kind of uh, populist nationalism, which is a fraud on conservatism, uh, should uh, take hold. And um, so, it's it's always out there. You know, it's just sometimes in remission. Right now, uh, it's not in remission, and uh, we need to figure out a way to. We'll never overcome it, but we can we can hopefully get it back in remission and return to to actual conservative principles uh, on climate change and and 
the way we relate to the world and uh, and all kinds of other things, the way we balance the budget, et cetera, et cetera. So there, there are a lot of places where things are amiss right now. So and and uh, the words that still ring in my, my ears from my daughter at 3 a.m., this isn't right, Dad. No, McCullough, it's not right. I'm letting that sink in from everybody, from your conservative lips to our multifaceted ears, I must say. Well, one one point that you revealed when you pulled a curtain away from the GOP congressional offices, uh, you know, lead, uh, you talked about that at uh, on This American Life, and what when you were pulling the, the curtain over your career in Congress, is that the staff to the Republicans are on, they've been on board with the climate trends, not the electeds whom are beholden to the Republican climate orthodoxy. Are the electeds now gradually demonstrating in private to you their changed sentiments? Yeah, what it takes for them to change is, uh, and, and to come to reality, because, you know, the, the, the truth is, you can believe that gravity doesn't exist, but if you step off the roof of your house, you're going down. Um, and oh. you can try to believe that climate change isn't real because you don't want to believe it, but it's coming your way. And so uh, uh, so experience is an effective teacher. It's just often a harsh teacher. And so we are being taught about climate change. So uh, there, uh, I think, all... Republican and Democrat members of Congress are experiencing climate change just as the rest of us are, and many of them have children or grandchildren or in college, and I'm sure they had had some conversations at Thanksgiving, you know, in the case of some of my friends on the right, probably their children and grandchildren were saying, you know, uh, Mom, Dad, uh, you know, what you're saying on the House floor is not what they're teaching me at the university you're paying for. Um, There, I'm taking physics and and I'm I'm taking chemistry and it's not what you're saying on the House floor. It's not what you're saying on the Senate floor. Um, And so uh, I hope that those conversations created some dissonance for those uh, members of Congress. Uh, The way that my son created dissonance for me is creative. You know, it, uh, it caused me to uh, to open to the possibility that I was I was just wrong about climate change because for six years I was disputing the existence of it. Well, Bob Inglis, um, to speak speaking about what educations uh, do, I was attending the Republican statewide convention in San Diego before the California primary this year, and a Republican National Committee member for all time, Sean Steele pronounced in a a caucus in that group. I mean, they knew I was with the press. This was not off the record. And Sean Steele said, American education is absolute poison. That is word for word quoting him. And so that it's sort of like there's still that mountain you're going to have to move. We have to all of us move to get that orthodoxy pushed away that they don't even think American educations are legitimate. Yeah, it's a big challenge. I think I think what we're dealing with is some some people with old talking points. Um, you know, um, uh, I'll date myself. You know, in in college in the eighties, 
uh, I came to faith, and I read uh, Francis Schaeffer, a Christian theologian, who's popular at the time, he's now dead, but he was writing a lot about the search for truth, and he, he had a phrase, he called it true truth. And at that time, you know, uh, a place like, say, the New York Times would be the the capital of relativism for those of us in the 80s who were sort of reading Francis Schaeffer um, and his search for true truth. Um, so fast forward um, and get rid of those old talking points. Fast forward to 2017. Uh, I stepped off of the metro in Washington at Capitol South. That's the stop at the Capitol. Right. And on all of the pillars, the New York Times had ads, poster ads, saying, truth, it matters now more than ever. Wow. And if Francis Schaeffer <laughs> were alive, I think he'd be astounded that, uh, that now a place like the New York Times is is advocating the importance of truth. And of course, the old talking points are, no, it's all, they're all relativist. And the old talking points may be about college and the university that apparently that person you just quoted is stuck in, is that, um, you know, there's this, uh, uh, this uh, lack of a search for truth. But I think in a, in a strange sort of way, we can think, we can thank uh, people like Donald Trump for helping us to realize the importance of truth, that, you know, you, you just can't make stuff up. And uh, there's some things are just true. And, and uh, we got to search for those truths and then work with them. Um, now, of course, I, I will say, uh, I do think a, a still live talking point that we need to be aware of yes. is that there is a, um, we, we need to invite everybody to the competition of ideas. And we can't have some sort of a block of uh, a, uh, that, that, that uh, you know, we, we won't hear from you if you have a different view. We've, a university should be a place that welcomes people like Francis Schaeffer, uh, if he were still alive, to proclaim his search for true truth. And then if there's somebody there who disagrees with them, well, let them debate. But don't shut down uh, at universities what Francis Schaeffer would, would be saying. Yeah, and speaking of the Thanksgiving you were talking about, I, I I would pay top dollar to be at the Thanksgiving table of every single congressional member turned out of office in Orange County since all of them flipped blue in this cycle. Yeah, yeah, it'd be very interesting. And, uh, you know, the, um, I think what we're seeing there is, uh, well, you tell me, but I'm guessing it's a in part a demographic trend. You know, on something like climate change, um, it's it's pretty clear that among young conservatives, it's a value proposition. It's not an issue position, and it's a value that they share with their liberal friends. Yes. Um, and so it's if you're going around in the old talking points of climate disputation, you're really just showing yourself to be rather retro. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, a, it's like. Claudia, I, I ran for the Senate, as you just mentioned, unsuccessfully yes. in 98. And I had these teardrop aviator glasses um, that were really thick because my vision isn't so good. And um, and so a, uh, an optician told my campaign manager, tell Bob to come in to see me. I'll help him with some new glasses. 
And she said back to the optician, oh, he just got some new ones, to which the optician said, oh, I'm so sorry, because I had replaced him with the very same aviator glasses. And so she told my campaign manager, just tell Bob to look around and see what everybody's wearing. Okay. And I looked around and realized that I was the only one wearing those old glasses. Well, I'm going to have so, to look up on the web what those those sound like a hot a pair, an aviator pair. But you're saying it was not yeah, not so hot. Now they're now they're back. Now back. Okay, so <laughs> you're still leaving. The funny thing is that we, especially politicians, get stuck in old styles and old talking points because you know they've got a very developed worldview because they've been asked to take positions and everything from abortion to trade with. Zaire, you know, and so the result is that uh, they've got a very thought-out worldview, and they're stuck in those talking points, and so new information coming over the transom, that's hard to receive, and so um, and it's not just true of politicians, Claudia, it's true of the people that they represent, that especially the activists um, in their own parties, and this is true on the Democratic side as well as the Republican side. Just as the politicians have a developed worldview, so does the activist on the left and the activist on the right. And so when information comes in that's contrary to what they're used to saying, it really takes a while for them to be able to turn around. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader. My guest is Bob Inglis, Executive Director of Republican.org and former congressman representing Greenville-Spartanburg, South Carolina, spreading the gospel that from free enterprise comes climate change solutions. And I'm going to, uh, we do need to talk about that, that, that the free enterprise system has so much room for climate change. And there's so many directions, and I'm not going to get all the, the time in the world to get to talk with you about each one of them. But you've been, carbon tax was one of the things that primaried you out. And so I, we, and we're going to talk about carbon tax again next week with my Citizens Climate Lobby people. But I, I think you'd know Mark Tabbert. He's going to be on next week. I know Mark Tabbert's worked with you over the time. So we'll, we'll put the carbon tax aside because my listeners have been hearing a lot about it. We'll take it up with a limited time. I just wanted you to react to, A, what the fourth climate assessment means in terms of pushing out this free enterprise message. And and we know that David Blood and Al Gore know there's tons of money to be made. Are they also coalescing with you, like with the grassroots organizations, a Citizens Climate Lobby? All that mouthful for you to address any way you like. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So it's um, it's an exciting thing that uh, we could actually bring America together. Um, progressives who are concerned about climate change, uh, conservatives who are concerned but also want to see free enterprise prosper. There's a clear path forward, and that is that uh, just, just bring accountability to all the fuels. Uh, make them all recognize and show at the power meter and at the gas pump all their costs. And then in the liberty of enlightened self-interest, that's for the libertarians listening, in the liberty of enlightened self-interest, consumers will seek their self-interest. And when they do, they're going to create an enormous marketplace. And if we do this right, it won't just be 325 million Americans. It'll be 7 billion people around the world clamoring for clean energy. And there's a way to do that. 
Um, and it fits with conservative values, and it fits with progressive norms as well. And so, uh, yeah, one of the things that inspired me is I knew that uh, Art Laffer, one of Ronald Reagan's economics advisors at the Laffer Curve, right. is, a neighbor, is a neighbor of uh, Al Gore's in Nashville, Tennessee. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, uh, Art decided he was tired of uh, paying taxes in California, you know, so he had, there were eight states that were entitled to receive his residency. Can you tell me what all those eight states have in common? <laughs> well, they don't have a state income tax. Oh, of so course. Tennessee, Tennessee is where he ended up. And uh, so he's a neighbor of Al Gore's. He's been over to Al's house. They talked it through, and they came to the conclusion that a revenue-neutral, border-adjustable carbon tax that you'll just discuss with, uh, with, with Mark the, and all. Mm-hmm. Citizens Climate Lobby friends, that and my friends, um, that – uh, works for both of them. Al, because he desperately wants to reduce emissions and to get uh, to, to to unleash the power of free enterprise to do it quickly, and Art, because he'd do anything to untax income and put a tax on anything else. And so, on our website at republicen.org, you'll see Art Laffer in the media tab uh, describing that. And um, so. Uh, for your listeners who uh, are conservative or have conservative friends, send them to our media tab on at republicen.org, and they'll see this great presentation by Art Laffer saying that, uh, yeah, this works for him, um, and it works for Al Gore. And so if the solution that we talk a lot about at uh, republicen.org sounds cons- sounds uh, familiar to the progressives in your audience, Yes. It, it may be because it's the same thing that Al Gore has been for for about 30 years. So um, there's an incredible opportunity to bring America together if we could just decide that we're going to focus on solutions rather than on sort of using climate change as a political wedge. And, and I would tell you, Claudia, that, is, that involves action on both the left and the right. On the right, we need people to get rid of the old talking points and come to the reality that climate change is happening, just like gravity happens if you step off the roof of your house. Um, But uh, uh, on the left, we need people to decide to drop the political wedge that has been so useful, which is to say, oh, these troglodytes, these, these retro Republicans, well, that works politically, but it divides us. In the case of climate, we really, this is, it's going to be amazing if we can pull it off. What's the vocabulary then? People, what is the vocabulary? The, well, it's, it's mostly to say this, to ask Republicans, if you would, not do you believe in climate change? Because if you say that, then basically it's some, if, if they answer that question in the affirmative in front of a conservative audience, then they're estranging themselves from that audience. Better question to ask is, can free enterprise solve climate change? Because then you skip over the belief question and you go right to the solution question. And that's where people can engage. Because if you you stick them on the belief question, then what you're really asking them to say is, yeah, I was stupid, the dumb kid in the class, the last one to get it, you're right. You're so much more better. 
um, now I'm coming to you, I'm acquiescing to your point of view. That's really hard for people to do. <laughs> so better to just skip over that and go right to, well, how can we solve this? Do you see any free enterprise solutions? Then conservatives can engage. And Kathleen Hayhoe, an evangelical in her upbringing and a climate scientist in a university, I always forget which one exactly in Texas. That is actually what she always, that's her refrain is, we start with the solutions, we get everybody on board. And that's that's what you're saying as well. And I I want to know when, when you talk to libertarians, uh, others in the free enterprise, what do you talk about with them when we're talking about what this waste means? With all this waste around us, it's signaling something in this economic system of ours isn't working. How how do you get them to understand that these externalities are no darn good? Yeah. Uh, well, one of the things you do, another thing you can see at our website at republician.org under the media tab is uh, a clip of Milton Friedman, okay. um, you know, a father of modern conservatism uh, on the Phil Donahue show in the 80s. What do you do about pollution then, Dr. Friedman, if you don't want to regulate it? And Dr. Friedman tells Phil Donahue, well, you tax it, of course. You tax pollution. And then he goes on to explain internalizing negative externalities. And that's rock-solid conservatism. It's also what many progressives uh, believe. Yes. So that's that's why comes my optimism that we can bring America together and and, and lead the world to a solution. I mean, I I understand that it's a it's a tough sell because the eyes the minds are on growth, but but growth is a false proposition if that externality persists. It stacks up, and we'll, the second half of this show will be with a, a Greenpeace campaigner, and they're 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 going after the producers of plastic, which is we're going to talk about how little is getting recycled anymore. So those externalities are, it's an abstraction, but it's not because it's piling up everywhere if we just open up our eyes and take a good look. Yeah, and the growth that will come from distributed energy systems being sold around yes. the world lighting up dark places that currently fester with terrorists. Um, we're talking all kinds of exciting things that are coming our way. And this is another way to talk to conservatives, not so much about the doom and gloom, uh, but rather about the incredible opportunity to uh, make a better world through those distributed energy systems, better batteries, better solar cells, probably um, creating that opportunity. And if we, uh, perfect those here in America, uh, we can sell that technology around the world to willing customers and make a lot of money while we're doing it. Uh, what's there not to like about uh, serving customers and making money and improving the world? And so um, that's what, uh, that's that kind of energy abundance message that uh, we think conservatives respond to. So I want to know if part of, if in your vocabulary also is the closed-loop economy. Do you talk about it in such terms? Um, not typically, but, uh, you know, uh, more often, I guess, it's a sustainability message. But um, we do have to figure out a way, obviously, to be sustainable. Um, and that's something. And, and, and so uh, perhaps that's uh, a similar theme, you know, is just, just how do you uh, – and, and it, it actually it, – it, it, Resonates well with um, with conservatives, particularly uh, uh, conservatives of faith, is to talk about 
creation care in that context. That uh, the idea is not to despoil uh, the the bit of Eden that's left. In other words, to to really tend the creation and to and to uh, love God and love people by tending that creation. And that's something that, uh, like say, Catherine Hayhoe at Texas Tech is particularly good at. Um, and uh, and I love to talk in that vein too because there's know so Catherine much Hayhoe? material there. Do you have you interacted with her? Do you know her? Oh yes, yeah, she's. Uh, She's a good friend and one of our advisors, and I guess I'm on her advisory board, so she, we're, 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 we're thick as thieves. Okay, so I gal-splained you. I'm so sorry, because I should have assumed <laughs> that you've already been thick with this. And So it is a, it's a lovely kind of talking point about uh, not despoiling what's remaining of Eden, and this is all really, really very, very helpful. The, the closed-loop economy, I guess I want, I'm wanting to advance that on this platform that is available to me so people can think of how, it, I mean, it deals with those externalities. It's closed-loop also. It's the distributed energy equivalent of, you know, how to, like, manage wastewater. Water doesn't get discharged. It's, it's treated on-site and reused on-site with, as a very high-quality product. And the energy savings, I'm, I'm going to have to give a little disclaimer that I uh, myself, uh, or full disclosure, I'm, I'm going to be involved in an enterprise that's dealing with the closed-loop solution in wastewater treatment and it's one of the few things that gives me hope that this this trend that we're amidst has any any chance of reversing yeah and it's exciting stuff those are kind of technologies really will make a huge difference and and that's the kind of creativity and innovation that we need to spawn the reason it isn't being spawned right now is economics don't work if, if you can use it up and throw it away at, at very little cost, well, then that's the way people will go. But if you, if you bring accountability um, and, and price it all in, exactly, then, uh, then the economics change, and then all kinds of things become possible. I was in science committee, saw many wonderful examples of technology waiting for the economics to work. And so uh, it's, it's all a matter of, in our view at republicen.org, is fixing those economics so that those uh, new technologies uh, can prosper. And the challenger fuels take out the incumbent fuels. Bad for the incumbents, but, hey, uh, the world moves on, and it's a better place if we do that. So I, I thought of that pricing mechanism when I was having lunch with a friend and the friend ordered a hamburger and I ordered a sort of a vegetarian alternative. I'm not a vegetarian, but I had the vegetarian and the, my vegetarian lunch cost about three to four times more than the beef choice. And I thought, well, there's a pricing problem right there. The, the energy yeah. externalities of that beef choice was far and above more expensive than my you know, wimpy little vegetable, uh, you know, patty. So uh, that's, I mean, the pricing goes right down to what we're shoving in our mouths. Yeah, it does. Because uh, when you when you account for those externalities, then things turn around. And, uh, and all kinds of uh, uh, new, new, new products become possible. And that's, that's the creative destructionism that conservatives especially should be celebrating. Um, we're in a strange spot right now where we're holding on to 
the uh, uh, fuels like coal, uh, as though we got nothing else. Let's just hold on to it, hug this this pile of coal, um, and uh, it's really a little bit of a lack of faith in innovation. I, I'm I'm fond of saying that uh, scratch a climate skeptic, and you'll find an innovation pessimist, uh-huh. somebody who doesn't think we can innovate. Um, and uh, so we need to help them uh, and, and you know, help them to see that innovation can happen because really that's what they are. They're innovation pessimists. Um, they just think we can't. We've we got to do with what we got, and uh, that's all we've got. Well, that's not the way it is. Uh, we can invent new things and uh, have human flourishing and creativity. And that is the cap to a lovely time that I've been able to have with you, Bob Inglis. Thank you so much for being on Ask a Leader. Well, great to be with you, Claudia. Thanks so much. Thank you. My guest was Bob Inglis, executive director of RepublicEN.org and former congressman representing Greenville-Spartanburg, South Carolina. It's a community of conservatives and libertarians advancing free enterprise climate policy. We'll be right back with Kate Melchus with the Greenpeace, who step up with their ambitious campaign to go to the root of all this plastic consumption. We'll be right back. Sometimes I just have to play Brahms' First Symphony when it seems like such a solemn coverage that we have. Thank you for staying with us. Welcome back to the show. My next guest is Kate Melgis, who soldiers on as an oceans campaigner at Greenpeace USA based in Seattle. Maybe you received her email blast just before Thanksgiving last week. I did. She began working with Greenpeace in 2011. I had the pleasure of meeting Kate when the Arctic sunrise pulled into Long Beach last summer. Kate is currently leading the development of Greenpeace USA's ocean plastics campaign aimed at ending the flow of plastic pollution in the ocean. Born and raised in Florida, Kate attended the University of South Florida. She comes to us today from Seattle. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Kate Melges. Hello. Thanks so much for having me today. Hello. And by the way, I have to ask, can you see Mount Rainier right now? I cannot. Oh, okay. Not today. Well, let's get down to the lurid current details about what's amassing on and off shore. I know your eyes are on not just the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, but where it's all floating around. Let's talk about this and talk about this rate of recycling, how much is ending up there and how much is just getting landfilled or or being uh, incinerated because that myth is happening at every grocery store stand I see when people are hauling out all their plastic bottles. Oh, yeah. We are reaching crisis proportions when it comes to plastic in the ocean. Um, it's estimated that every minute, one garbage truck size amount of plastic enters into our oceans from all over the world. So every minute, all day, all year long. So since, you know, in the past hour, like 40, 40 so truckloads since 9 a.m. have been entering into the ocean. Um, and without significant intervention, that rate is set to quadruple in the next 20 to 30 years. 
which is pretty horrifying. There's tons and tons of plastic. I think we're seeing more things in supermarkets and packaging just changing to, to plastic and flexible plastic that's hard to recycle. Um, to date, only 9% of all the plastic that's ever been created has been recycled. Pretty terrible recycling rates, and recycling rates in the U.S. are hanging out around 10% or a bit, bit lower of all plastic. So just because it's thrown in the bin doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be recycled or that it can be recycled. And so what what are the rates now? I mean, I, bring me up to date if I'm off, but I thought we're now, we're at the point where 10% of the plastics are getting recycled. Yep, that's, that's my understanding as well, currently. So, and which is, I mean, if we all look at, stare at the plastic, and I, I, I've begun to look at every supermarket. I think I mentioned this to Bob Inglis too in the previous interview. Is I, that's all I see when, when you really put your your mind to it. When you look throughout the retail arena, it's nothing but plastic. It's everywhere. Every there's cucumbers wrapped in plastic, peeled oranges in plastic boxes. You know, rice comes in plastic bags now. They're even changing a lot of jars, like tomato sauce jars and other jars into into plastic. It's absolutely everywhere. And a lot of the plastic that we're seeing in stores, oh, this, this flexible, like, film-type packaging, like the bags, um, not plastic bags, but, like, the bags that your chips come in or bags that your dried fruit come in or whatnot, those can't be recycled. And a lot of these multi-layer, like, Oil and plastic can't be recycled either. So we're seeing a huge shift um, in the the companies that are you know packaging these goods. They're shifting away from you know paper and aluminum and glass and um, easily re- items that are able to be recycled easily into more like flexible plastic packaging. That's extremely difficult to be recycled if it's able to be recycled at all. And my concern is that you know I I used to be able to just get a craft beer six pack in bottles in a paper sort of six-pack case, and now it's replaced by aluminum cans with a plastic sort of a cap that sort of holds that six-pack together. So Mm -hmm. we're going the wrong direction, folks. I know, I know. It's been plastic on everything, things that didn't necessarily need plastic. (laughs) Now it has it. So I I had Algalita along with uh, Julie Durrell with Bring Your Own Long Beach, cover this the consumer end earlier this year. Greenpeace's approach is at the other end of the relationship, the producer. So could you, Kate, talk to us about corporate responsibility in reducing this trash that's making you and me just want to, like, shrivel up and collapse? Yeah, so the way that we're viewing the problem, you know, cleanups are really useful like in recycling is extremely useful when things are actually able to be recycled but it's not the only way that we're going to solve the problem um, of plastic pollution and if you think about if your bathtub or your sink was overflowing in your home you know you forgot to turn it off and it's flowing all over your house and into the kitchen and down the hall you wouldn't immediately run for a mop or a towel to start cleaning up the floor you would run to the faucet and try and turn it off and so that, that's how we view plastic pollution is we need to stop it at its source. And the way to do that is get these companies like Coke and Pepsi, Nestle, Unilever, Procter & Gamble, Bannon, even grocery stores like Trader Joe's or Albertsons, Safeways, Whole Foods, to stop producing so much plastic and to stop packaging all their goods in plastic and look for alternative ways to deliver and package their products and more reusable Systems. And it's something that they can do, you know, 
60 years ago, plastic wasn't as prevalent as it is today. So we know that it is possible. It's going to be a little bit different because we are in such a consumer, like fast-moving, convenient, need everything right now kind of society. But it is possible. And these companies have the means and have the research teams to figure it out. And so they need to start doing it because we don't have a lot of other options when it comes to purchasing products. Everything's wrapped in plastic. I mean, more than, more than everything. Ev- like more Coke. than everything. <laughs> everything oh, plus. <laughs> so we have a role. I mean, we, I've talked about, you know, at the consumer end when I've talked to Julie and to Katie Allen. We talked about, you know, I, I can sort of lock a stare on somebody with a single-use plastic as they walk away from their beverage purveyor, not to be named because they're all of them doing it. But mm-hmm. so how do the consumers make an, a bold and earnest appeal to producers to stop this. Yeah, there's a, I mean, like, our purchasing power speaks. So we can avoid these companies that are selling stuff. You can certainly reach out to these companies. They care, and they think that they're doing what the consumers want, more easy, on-the-go, like, plastic packaged things, which I don't think is necessarily the case. Like, people aren't, like, craving for plastic, and that's all they want. Like, sure, they want things to be easy, but... You know, we want to protect the planet and not trash everything at the same time. So I think, you know, reaching out to these, these companies, sending an email or calling the customer care line, um, there's a bunch of petitions floating around you can sign. We have a couple up on our website as well, some of the largest companies. When it comes to your supermarket, go and talk to the store manager. Um, ask them if they have any products that aren't wrapped in plastic when you're looking for produce. Like, do they sell cucumbers that are not wrapped in plastic? Do they sell grapes that aren't in a plastic bag? But really having these conversations with the management and the employees that you are able to, that you have access to, and when it comes to some of the bigger brands and companies, and just communicating to them what you want. I did go to one uh, retailer that um, I buy laundry detergent. They used to have it in a box, and then uh, that that was discontinued. And then there was one with like a small Ziploc bag versus the huge heavy-gauge plastic jug of laundry detergent. So that that dried up that store up as an option. So I found, I went to a, a larger supermarket. There was one paper, a cardboard box of laundry detergent. Everything else was these huge plastic jugs. So, I mean, that's one thing. But I guess, I mean, does Greenpeace get involved in costing out these externalities of the plastic waste to, to make put pressure on producers to be good neighbors in uh, in the world around us? We haven't gotten really specific into the dollar amount or anything like that quite yet, but we certainly look at the entire life cycle of plastic, so from extraction, so a lot of fracking is being used for plastics. So looking at, at that side of things all the way to the end of life when the the product is, is disposed of. And a lot of these companies are just looking at the life cycle uh, from a carbon footprint when being transported. So as they're shipping it around the world or around the country to various stores and locations to be sold, they're looking at, at the weight and how much carbon they're using to ship it. They're not looking at the entire life cycle. Um, so we are looking, we are approaching it from a very different way than they are and are trying to, you know, communicate that as well to them that they need to look at the entire life cycle from extraction until disposal. For those of you who've just tuned in, my guest here is Kate Melchis, an oceans campaigner at Greenpeace USA. It's based in Seattle, this particular operation. And this is Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, 
And we're on all the social media platforms. Just you'll find us with KUCI. You can run up there. And so we're talking about, well, I'm not, informing, incentivizing. I'm trying to think of there's another I in there. Um, Not increasing, uh, inducing (laughs) the producers to rethink all this. And there was a chemist, and again, his name doesn't occur to me right this second, formerly from UC Berkeley, and now he's on a Safe Something website about, he's frustrated that the for even he as a chemist is really daunted by how difficult the labeling is for him to understand what's really inside product, you know, but he talked about pillows, but we're talking about plastic is everywhere. So uh, is labeling also something that Greenpeace is trying to help people out with, incentivize? Um, when it comes to like the type of plastic, not, not really. We, any single use plastic, we are not, not a fan of and want to see transitioned away. So a lot of the personal care and home care goods. um, Yes, exactly. We do want more labeling around some of these bioplastics that are, that are popping up, like the plant-based plastics. Um, because folks are really confused about those as well. You think you can just throw them in the recycling bin, which they can't be recycled, or you can throw them into your compost. And they need to be industrially composted, so it, it will mess up. A lot of cities don't have those, those facilities to do that. We do want to see some stricter labeling and just more education and understanding around bioplastics, and that's something that we are that we are working on. So break down exactly how those break down. Um, where do we put the biodegradable plastics? So in Seattle, a lot of restaurants have them here, and they get taken to an industrial composting facility, so they get picked up curbside or maybe not residential curbside, but uh, commercial curbside and get taken to a commercial composting facility where they are heated to a very, very high high heat. And a lot of other cities don't have that infrastructure, but um, as we're seeing, you know, the shift away from plastic straws and plastic to-go where a lot of companies are using, a lot of restaurants are using these uh, degradable bioplastics, like plant-based plastics, and they don't necessarily do a whole lot more good in the area that they are because they don't have the infrastructure in the city to, to handle them. So they get thrown into the composting or into the recycling bins, and they just clog them up, and you're not able to then, like, recycle that batch of plastic that it gets stuck in with or that gets into landfill where it's just sort of plastic cups sitting in the, in the landfills. But so if a plant-based plastic gets chucked into the, the uh, water column from whatever pathway, that that still is a hazard to it is. P- the animal life in the ocean, in any water body. Yep, and it still has some toxic chemicals and materials okay. in it as well. It's not just because it's made from plants, like totally fine, but there's a lot of stuff that they use in them, some types of them that are not great. So it's, that, it is no solution, to, to be quite quite clear on that so yeah there's no easy easy solution and that's why we we really want to see more reusable so you know some of the big soda and drink companies using more of their fountain side of the business so more of the fountain sodas and having more reusable containers that people can have same with home care and personal care going to like refill your shampoo containers or laundry detergent containers but looking for more reusable systems so is, is Greenpeace working with sort of shareholder kinds of discussions in boardrooms to people that have st- uh, interest in any, you name whatever, corporation, that uh, that those people 
participate in boardroom discussions to bring out the good neighbor incentives for for those firms? Uh, Sometimes we work with stakeholders and shareholders, but we oftentimes work with just our our supporters and go directly to the companies. So we've been able to deliver, you know, half a million or a million petitions to different companies, calling on them to reduce their single-use plastic footprint. And that gives us a lot of power, having those signatures and showing the companies and the executives of those companies that we have, you know, hundreds of thousands of people across the globe or in the United States that want to see them do better and want to see a transition away from plastic. And that is a very, very powerful thing. Okay. So I'm, well, one thing that comes to mind is that we can all think about now, here we are in the beginning of the holidays and there's going to be all these receptions and gatherings and we know what's going to be served along with the food. And so I guess this is my little opportunity to make everybody think now about you can either bring something with you or you can provide as the host something other than a plastic, uh, you know, cuddlery and the plastic plates and cups and that kind of a thing, or bring your own. That, I mean, what, have you just made that a, a regular practice of your own being a guest and hosting? Yeah, I do. I very rarely anymore, if at all, use paper plates or any sort of disposable plates. Um, certainly never use plastic plates. I always use silverware when I have guests over instead of using plastic silverware. Um, I just throw in the dishwasher or wash it or have my guests, you know, help me clean it up so it's not all on me to wash all the dishes and all the all the utensils. Same with cups. And then I have a travel set of bamboo utensils in a little case that I carry with me everywhere. So I always have one in my work bag and one in my purse. So if I'm out and grabbing a bite to eat, um, I don't have to use a plastic utensil if that's my only option. And I always carry a coffee cup and a water bottle with me as well, a stainless steel one. I try to avoid as much as I can. But we are. We are poised right now to to influence how much waste is generated over the holidays. When we think about that now, we could, it's, it's not that hard to bring something along with us. We know there's going to be food at the other end, or we know we're going to be providing. And so we sort of rethink what we're going to be using, as, as mm-hmm. I was saying, guest or host. Well, we have uh, just a little bit more time left that uh, Greenpeace... I know it's not exactly your purview, but I want to give you an opportunity, Kate, to talk about what Greenpeace's last efforts to stop either the with the oil pipeline construction here around the country, blocking offshore drilling, and as Governor Brown winds down his fourth and final term as governor of California, what Keep It in the Grounds campaign status is now, today. Yeah, I can give a quick update on that. It's not not what I work on and not what I'm super familiar with, but I was able to connect with um, my colleagues on that team before before this um, this conversation, so I can give a bit of an update. Yes. And then I guess sometime it'd be great for you to connect with those folks and have them on the on the show for your listeners. I think it'd be great. They're coming up with some amazing plans for next year working on, on climate, so I think it'd be great to have them on. Okay, and we have a governor who... A governor-elect who prides himself on a green portfolio, so it's, I guess, but but certain actions happen in a different way when you're leaving office, and we know Governor Brown's terming out finally. Um, that uh, that those are different kinds of windows opportunities than perhaps a, an environmentally minded chartered uh, incoming 
office holder would have as, you know, they're taking all kinds of demands and figuring out what, what kind of a budget they really have to work with. So um, it's, it, it's a really extraordinary opportunity. Well, here I'm going to give you this chance as we close the interview. It's your chance, Kate, to pitch how, what you want listeners to do to contribute to your mission on Giving Day. <laughs> yeah, you can, uh, you can text the word plastic-free to the number 877-877. Again, that's plastic-free to 877-877. And that will send you a link to a petition calling on some of the world's largest companies to reduce their single-use plastic footprint. And it will get you connected with our campaign. You can stay involved in the work that we're doing and help us really call on these, these corporations hard over the next couple of months. Okay. Well, I applaud you for looking at the whole the whole waste stream from the producer end to the consumer end that you certainly have, you've changed my game from the, being the scold at the, the consumer end and I'm looking more expansively at how we can be influencing the, the waste stream all the way through production means. So I... Kate Melgis, I'm so glad that you gave us this time today on Ask a Leader. You're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. That My guest was Kate Melgis. She is the Greenpeace USA Oceans campaign campaigner, and we're talking about the plastics all around us. And I'm going to close this show here just a second with Mr. Sonny Rollins, the global warming theme. So that's my wrap today. Next week, as I mentioned earlier, I'm going to have on Mark Tabert and Kathy Orlinski with local updates galore on climate. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. (laughs) 